This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is being the master of your life and the choices you make. In the first half, Carrie Roberts shares her address, If You Don't Like It, Change It. Then in the second half, Dana T. Griffin speaks on choices and changes, burdens and blessings. When it was announced that I would be speaking at a devotional, they posted this picture on byu.edu. When my husband saw my name listed before Elder Uchtdorf and Elder Suarez, he took a screenshot and sent it to me with a text that read, Listed in order of importance? Question <laughs> mark. This gave me a good laugh, but also impressed upon my mind what an honor it is to be speaking at this pulpit. Even though I feel inadequate for the task at hand, I pray that what I have prepared may benefit you in some way. As I pondered what to say, I reached out to a friend who told me that I couldn't really say anything that hasn't already been said before. All I could do is take you on my journey. So I hope in the process you can learn something from some of the things I've learned in my life. The two most memorable pieces of advice I received as a child came from each of my parents. One day I came home from school in a terrible mood. Something had upset me, so I complained and vented to my mother. Even though this occurred when I was very young, I still remember her wise words. Carrie, if you don't like something, then change it. I was stunned and puzzled. I thought, wait, I can do that? She added to her advice by saying, if you think you can or you can't, you are right. I had no idea what she was talking about. I was confused, and I thought my mother was speaking in tongues. But for some reason, the phrase, if you don't like it, then change it, has always stuck with me. Her lesson is one I want to share with you today. Through your agency and by learning to think and act for yourself, you can create the life that you want. My dad taught me the other most memorable lesson of my youth. This one came when I was struggling to choose which college I wanted to attend and play golf for. I had several offers but didn't know where to go. Eventually, I narrowed my search to three schools. Yet, when the time came to sign with a school, I sat at my kitchen table staring at three national letters of intent with no idea who to sign with. At the time, my dad was a successful golfer on the senior PGA Tour, yet he didn't try to influence my decision. Instead, he allowed me to make my own choice about college. Finally, I reached out to my dad and asked him, where should I go? He responded with the question, well, what do you want? I was confused. What do you mean, what do I want? He asked another question, what do you want out of life? After thinking about it, I told him what I wanted. He replied, then choose the school that will give you that. In order to get what you want in life, you have to first know what you want. It's hard to think and act for yourself when you don't know what to think and act upon. Knowing what you want is understanding your why. Discovering your why is powerful. It brings motivation, passion, and desire. It can begin to give meaning to how you live your life. It can also give your life purpose. I think so much pain and confusion could be avoided if people think and act for themselves and know why they are doing things. By figuring out my why, I was able to create a vision for my life, define what it should look like, and begin to take action to get it. But that lesson took me a while to figure out. Throughout my life, happiness was hard to come by. In my teenage years, I sought exercise to bring me happiness. I worked out every day. I did cardio. I lifted weights. And to me, I thought I looked pretty fit. But doing what I thought I should did not bring the promised happiness. In my 20s, I thought maybe if I didn't have to worry about money, I would be happy. So I worked. I saved. And then I invested. And then the returns came. I'm not saying I could buy an island or a private jet, but I didn't have to worry each month if I could pay my bills. Even though I had fun things and I could buy cool shoes, again, the promised happiness of doing what I thought I should did not come. So I turned to the gospel of Jesus Christ for happiness and fulfillment. I diligently studied my scriptures. I faithfully said my prayers. I tried to be perfect. But even living an obedient life and doing as I thought I should did not bring me the promised happiness. I began to believe that I was just not good enough, smart enough, or pretty enough. Worst of all, I began to think God did not love me. 
but my thoughts were deceiving me. In college, I was introduced to Dr. Richard Heaps, a psychologist here at BYU. He taught me that the happiness I sought wouldn't just come. I needed to create it. He also taught me that controlling my thoughts would enable me to take the actions necessary to create the happiness I wanted. He taught me that every thought and action I had each day needed to lead me towards the happiness I desired or the things I wanted in life. It took some time, but I began, as Alma says, to receive joy, as was my pain. I also learned that to think and act for myself, I could use my agency, as we all can, to build an armor to protect ourselves against the devil's greatest tools of self-defeat, discouragement, and the lack of self-belief that we just weren't born good enough for God's love. The main reason we are here on earth is to learn to become like Heavenly Father. I believe that entails learning to create as He does. Thinking for yourself and taking control of your agency allows you to take action towards a life you want with the help of a loving Father in Heaven who desires to help us forge our own unique journey here in mortality. What is important to us is important to Him. He wants us to use the talents and abilities He has blessed us with to fulfill our dreams, to have lives of joy and fulfillment. Like our earthly fathers who would do anything to help us if we brought to them a well-thought-out plan, our Heavenly Father is the same. This requires us, though, to first understand our why or what we want. Then we can act on them. What are your passions and talents? What is it that each of you wants to achieve in your life? With that personal understanding and desire, along with the help of a God who is there to guide and aid you, what you can achieve is without limits and has no boundaries. It is not important that you understand my purpose or my why. I have to know and understand that. Some would say a mother shouldn't be in the workforce. Am I criticized? Sure. Do people worry about me and my kids? All of the time. Do they counsel my husband on what they think is better for him than to be a work-from-home dad? Sure they do. But they don't need to understand his why, and they don't need to understand our why. We are the only ones that must understand that. Your journey is to know and understand your why so that you can live your life and not someone else's. You are to progress in a way that you need, not in a way that someone else thinks you should. Throughout our children's lives, my husband and I have tried to teach them to think and act for themselves and develop the power that comes from doing so. Learning to use our agency to create our own lives manifests itself with different opportunities at all stages of life. When my oldest daughter Mary was young, she started showing a passion for soccer. As you might guess, my passion is golf. After she read a book by soccer legend Alex Morgan, whose passion was also soccer and whose dad's passion was baseball, Mary related in a sweet and innocent way how she learned from Alex that she needed to follow what she loved so that she could be happy just like Alex Morgan followed her passion and not her dad's. Of course, we are on board allowing her to live her love of playing soccer, but I still tease her that I think her passion is still golf. An opportunity arose once to teach my son Hank how to make more empowered choices. One evening I pulled an audible and I told him I was replacing our usual Little Caesars pizza with a healthier option of an English muffin topped with tomato sauce and fresh mozzarella. He responded, Well, I can choose for myself, and I decide not to taste your pizza. With some motherly teaching, or as some would say motherly persuasion, I said he could make that choice only after he took a bite of my alternate selection. And yes, he did end up liking my pizza. My youngest son, Lincoln, struggles with pronouncing words. Even though he's young, he's learning that he can choose to work harder instead of feeling frustrated. He can respond by giving more effort until he can pronounce his words perfectly. Before we came to earth, we had two plans to choose from. One would give us freedom to choose. The other would force us to think and act as someone else would have us do. When the decision was made to give the children of the earth power to choose, war ensued. Having our agency was so important that we were willing to go to war to protect it. The plan of salvation contains agency. Satan is the father of all lies and seeks for us to be miserable like unto himself, and he fought and continues to fight to take away that agency. 
Perhaps, then, the way to defeat Satan and to become more like our Father in heaven is to take charge of our God-given right to control our agency and use our ability to think and act for ourselves to create the life we want. I believe that one of the great lessons we can learn from the gospel is to come to understand the importance of creating our own lives through our agency and by thinking and acting for ourselves. Each day you have the freedom to choose what you want to think and what you want to do. The scriptures remind us often of this gift that God has given us. Thinking for yourself allows you to figure out what you want. Once you know what you want, you can begin to use your agency to act on it. But the key is self-confidence. You must act as the scriptures say, doubting nothing and nothing wavering. It is our divine birthright to use our agency to create the life we want. We often hear the phrase, God cares a lot more about who we are becoming than who we once were. I find this to be a great example of how God encourages us to recognize our righteous desires and make decisions that will lead us to the life we want, a life that brings us joy. Benjamin Franklin had this to say about choice. We stand at the crossroads each minute, each hour, each day making choices. We choose the thoughts we allow ourselves to think the passions we allow ourselves to feel, and the actions we allow ourselves to perform. When we ourselves stand at those daily crossroads, are we thinking and acting for ourselves or allowing others to dictate who we are and what we do? Are we allowing others to tell us what we can become? Are we living lives of mediocrity because someone told us that's all we can do? Are we allowing others to dictate what we are worth? Are you allowing other people to own your identity? As the great philosopher William James said, men are so anxious to improve their circumstances but unwilling to improve themselves. The principle of thinking and acting for yourself and using your agency to create the life you want is about self-improvement. It's about being better than you were the day before. On our golf team, we call this win the day. It's about getting a little bit better each day until you get what you want. As the scriptures say, by small and simple things are great things brought to pass. It's an accumulation of focused effort. If you put enough good days together, you will be rewarded. It's a daily consistency of acting as you choose that builds and ultimately gets you what you want and where you want to be. William James also teaches us that as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Our attitude is everything. It determines what we think about ourselves, which determines how successful we will be. Thinking and acting for yourself and using your agency to create the life you want allows you to know what you want and who you want to be, which will provide you the confidence to never give up when obstacles mount. The obstacles become a pleasure and something to learn from because you understand that those obstacles are just part of the process of reaching what you want. When you understand your why and are thinking and acting for yourself, you approach the life with the attitude of, why not me? Someone is going to get what they want, so why not me? It's similar to my attitude towards the lottery. Someone is going to win, so why not me? You continuously seek to improve yourself in your circumstances. You look for reasons why you can instead of why you can't. You focus on what you can control and center your day on what it will take to inch closer to what you want. You work as if you cannot and will not fail. You are totally committed to your purpose. You become unwavering and unbending on your journey. It's acting as Nephi did to promptings with the phrase, I will go and I will do. It's being able to continue to act even though your plans didn't work out the first time and your brothers Laman and Lemuel doubt and ridicule you, but you persevere and try again until you succeed because it is your purpose. It's having the attitude of confidence like the stripling warriors, acting without fear because they did not doubt. When you understand your why and you think and act for yourself, you can then preserve your identity amid outside pressure to be someone or something you are not. That way, when the pressures of the world and the doubters and the naysayers beat upon you, you are unmoved because you know and understand your purpose and why you do what you do. You are not like the people who held to the iron rod, endured through the mist of darkness, and even tasted of the fruit. But when they saw the people laughing and mocking, felt ashamed. 
Instead, you hold firm to the rod, enjoy through the mist of darkness, take a delicious bite of fruit, then point to the people in the great and spacious building and say, it's a shame you are missing out. I think you should try some. Christ was the perfect example of someone who understood his purpose. Even though he was doubted, criticized, spit upon, whipped, betrayed by his closest friends, and convicted of a crime he did not commit, he simply did not give up because it was too hard or because people did not believe in him. Instead, he continued to the end because he knew his purpose and he knew his why. One of my favorite stories of someone who knew what he wanted and then thought and acted for himself to get it is David's courageous fight against Goliath. I have always felt similar to David. As the youngest child in my family, I was the smallest. Also like David, I've sought out big, scary goals that can intimidate, like Goliath. Just as the people surrounding David doubted and discouraged him, people have told me I couldn't achieve some goals simply because they were too big. Imagine how much opposition David faced. While trying to gather the courage to go one-on-one with a giant, he met with resistance from his own countrymen who didn't believe in him. Through his faith, David knew he could do it. After all, he had taken down lions and bears. Best of all, he had such great courage that he didn't just creep forward to face Goliath. He ran toward him. David decided for himself what he wanted, acted on his courage, overcame doubters, then ran toward his goal and single-handedly defeated his gigantic opponent. Because David could think for himself, he knew what he wanted. Because he could act for himself, he created a plan and used his agency to execute with self-belief and confidence. Instead of listening to the naysayers who thought he was too young or lacked experience, and instead of doubting his abilities, he focused on what he wanted. He worked hard protecting his sheep by killing bears and lions, and with self-confidence ran towards accomplishing his goals. How many of us listen to the naysayers and instead of running towards what you want, we run away from it? When athletes discover their why and act on it with belief, greatness happens. I have seen a player start as a walk-on, have no business being in our starting lineup, and end up becoming not only the best player on our team, but the best player in our conference and one of the best players in the country. I have seen good players who are just okay turn into All-Americans. I have seen great players accomplish their dreams long before they thought they could. A few years ago, when I was meeting with my team captains before the beginning of the year, I asked, what do you want for this team? What do you want to accomplish? Without hesitation, they said they had met previously and thought that NCAA regionals was great, but they wanted to compete at the national championship. At the time, we were an up-and-coming team. This would be the first year I had my own players I had recruited. I didn't know exactly what we were capable of, but I knew if that's what they wanted, we could create a plan to get it. We just needed to work really hard to get it and have complete buy-in from everyone. We talked about the plan of attack and introduced it to the team. The most important part, this was their desire, their want, and their goal. My job was to show them how to get it and to hold them accountable to the things they said they would do to get it. Winning in golf is a very difficult thing to do. You can have a long career, make millions of dollars, and never win, and yet you could still be considered successful. Winning once a year as a team is quite a big deal. Those teams who do it more than once are elite. This particular year, with what we wanted clearly defined and our why as solid as could be, we won five out of nine events, including our first conference championship since 1992. After our conference win, we headed to regionals. There, it didn't matter what you had done previous. You now had to place top six in the field of 18 to advance to the national championship. They break up the teams into four regions, and they sent us to Louisiana to play a very difficult golf course against a very difficult field on conditions we were not used to playing. We would play three rounds of 18 holes to determine our fate. With one round to go, we were in fifth place, but we had one more day left. On the final day, I checked to see where we were at after nine holes, which meant we had nine holes to go. We were behind about six strokes. Deep down, I knew that anything could happen, and I thought to myself, okay, ladies, if you want to go to nationals, then now is the time to take us there. As we were playing the 15th hole, I saw us make some key mistakes that caused some big scores. I thought, no, no, no. But on the scoreboard, we were somehow now even with the team ahead of us. 
I looked at our girls. They were calm, stoic. They appeared to know exactly why they were there and what they wanted to accomplish with a look of confidence that they would not be denied their goal. They proceeded to the next hole to play as if the mistakes hadn't happened. When we had three holes to go, the team with which we were tied had finished. Now it was up to us. We had to have all four counting players finish one under on the last three holes to make it to nationals. This was no small feat. Our sophomore hit a clutch approach shot on the last hole to secure the birdie that we needed. When I asked her what she was thinking, knowing that she would have to wait 45 minutes for the rest of her team to finish, she said, I wasn't thinking, let alone breathing. Now it was up to the next three counting players to finish strong. I was with our junior, who hit her approach in the greenside bunker on the last hole. With a difficult up and down, she curled in a 10-foot putt to secure our one-stroke lead. Now all we needed was our last two players to finish par or better. The entire left side of the finishing hole on this golf course was water. If you missed left, you had to take a penalty and add a stroke to your score. We learned later that the opposing team lost eight shots on that hole alone. Our conference player of the year was up next and had left herself with a nerve-wracking 15-foot putt to save par. With a small chance to make it, she willed the ball into the hole. With our number one player still to finish, we received a text message that she has a short putt for birdie to give us a two-stroke advantage. But she hit the putt too hard and made an improbable three-putt to put us into a tie. I met her in the fairway on the last hole to discuss the approach. She felt confident in a six-iron and let it rip. With what her dad says was the best six-iron of her life, she put her approach to ten feet or so above the hole. We dissected that putt from every angle to make sure we knew exactly how she should play that putt. The ball just happened to be sitting on a ledge, which from one angle looked like the ball would go left. From the other angle, it looked like it would go right. So we decided to play it straight. When later asked why she smiled before she hit the putt, she commented, because I knew I was going to make it. As the putt dropped and the crowd roared, an opposing coach called it the most exciting moment in golf that she has been a part of. We had now accomplished our goal of qualifying for the national championship. What was unique about this experience is that we were the first BYU team to require the NCAA to move their national championship since one of the rounds was played on Sunday. The girls handled it like pros and put BYU women's golf on the map. They defined what they wanted. Every day they worked to get a little closer to that goal. They remembered their why each day, and they proceeded with confidence, even through adversity, to ultimately be awarded their goal. And afterwards, we celebrated in true BYU fashion by toasting our chocolate milks at a Louisiana Waffle House at 2 a.m. <laughs> to become a champion in life is to discover your why. Learn to think and act for yourself and use your agency to create the life you want. You are the author of your own story. What you write is up to you. Will you take control of your divine birthright and be heroic or just someone trying to get by? Will you be the star of your own life or someone sitting on the end of the bench? We are free to choose how to live our lives. We are free to choose what we are going to think about ourselves. No one can stop us, as the millennials would say, from living our best life. Yet, many people choose not to live their best life. They are choosing to believe that they don't have a chance, that the competition is better, tougher, and more skilled than they are. They are choosing to believe that they were not born to succeed. They are choosing to be mediocre. You get to choose. Will you own your life or let someone else own it? We have a saying on our team that goes like this, help your teammate first. Why? Because we are all in this together. We cannot win by ourselves. We have to win as a team. It does us no good to watch our teammates struggle while we know how to help them. We build trust, loyalty, and strength among teammates when we give of ourselves to make them better. And so it is with life. When it comes to life, it doesn't matter who is stronger, faster, smarter, prettier, whose kids are more talented, or who has more things. Sometimes we forget our why and our purpose and act based on what other people think and do when we put ourselves in competition with people who are no threat to our eternal destiny. When we become aware that every soul on earth is equal, that no soul is greater than any other, we will hopefully remember our why, act on it, 
and help others discover theirs and help them act on it. As John Gordon says, you are here for a reason. You have a purpose and you are meant to live and share it. Yes, your roommate is awesome. While it may seem to you that your neighbor has it all put together, one thing remains the same. You have the exact same potential as they do. Yes, they are good, but so are you. You have the same ability to think and act for yourself. You have the same ability to make choices. You have the same ability to work as hard as you possibly can. And you have the same ability to believe in yourself. So rise up, you loyal cougars. And when it comes to sports, hurl your greatest challenge to the foe. But when it comes to life, remember, the noblest aim in life is to make other lives happier and better. I want to encourage you today to begin to think and act for yourself. Find your passions. Figure out what you truly want in life. Discover your why. Then go to work acting for yourself to create the life you want. Knowing, understanding, and discovering your why is powerful. Acting on it is life-changing. Remember, if there is something in your life you don't like, you have the power to change it. I pray that we will have the strength to be who we were meant to be, more Christ-like people who think and act for themselves and live the life we were meant to live. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is being the master of your life and the choices you make. We've just heard from Carrie Roberts. After the break, we'll return with Dana T. Griffin for Choices and Changes, Burdens and Blessings. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today's theme is being the master of your life and the choices you make. Next is Dana T. Griffin, a professor of geology and associate dean of the College of Physical and Mathematical Sciences at the time of this address. Choices and Changes, Burdens and Blessings. A well-worn and much-loved poem by Robert Frost introduces the subject. You may know the work, or perhaps you have heard only the oft-quoted last lines. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler, long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth, then took the other, as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I should be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Each day our literal and figurative feet carry us to places where the roads diverge and we must choose. Some of the choices are no-brainers in the current vernacular, and some tax our mental capacities. Some seem to be of little consequence, while others appear to hold eternity in the balance and really do make all the difference. Because we are here in part to learn to make righteous and right choices, perhaps none is trivial in the longest view. Contrast the thoughtful and deliberate approach to choices and consequences suggested by Frost's poem with the sign Sister Griffin and I saw in Las Vegas. The sign declared, Wedding Chapel. No waiting, no questions, no thinking. (laughs) We had a good laugh at the sign as we recognized the irony in seeing it on the way to a temple wedding. But the sobering reality is that too many, in and out of the Church, think about some choices too little and fail to connect the road they choose with the place it leads. Go with me to a vaguely familiar but not quite remembered place, in a time too remote to contemplate where perhaps time as we understand it had no meaning. There was one who would have denied each of us our moral agency, the freedom to choose for good or ill in order to exalt himself. There was one also who saw through that ruse. 
and declared himself on the side of agency. The scriptures tell of a war full of casualties, except that physical death was not possible for anyone there. No, the cost, spiritual death, was far more serious. Listen to this from John the Beloved, writing in Revelation. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. This bit of pre-mortal history has been reviewed in countless talks and lessons, and it may pass glibly through the consciousness. One-third of the hosts of heaven were cast out. Think about it. How many people have you seen in your life, including on television and in movies? How many live on the earth right now? One-third is an impressive number, and we haven't included in our informal census everyone who has ever lived or will ever live. In that premortal realm, the outcasts had been our brothers and sisters. I wish to elicit no sympathy here. This was serious business, and they would, after all, have betrayed us. We are still fighting the war of agency, but it is no longer a question of whether we will be allowed to choose, for that is decided once and for all. The battle in the second estate is all about how we use our agency. It is still serious business. You may say, or wish you could, I will live my life as I see fit and will simply ignore the battle. It need not concern me. That is not an option. Daniel Tyler, an early member of the Church, told of the visit he and Isaac Behunin made to Joseph Smith in Nauvoo. The prophet had recently come from imprisonment in Missouri, and he related to these brethren the persecutions he had endured, many at the hands of apostates. According to Brother Tyler's account, Brother Behunin exclaimed, If I should leave this Church, I would not do as those men have done. I would go to some remote place where Mormonism had never been heard of and no one would ever know that I knew anything about it. To that, the Prophet Joseph responded, Brother Behunin, you don't know what you would do. No doubt these men once thought as you do. Before you joined this Church, you stood on neutral ground. When the gospel was preached, good and evil were set before you. You could choose either or neither. There were two opposite masters inviting you to serve them. When you joined this Church, you enlisted to serve God. When you did that, you left neutral ground, and you never can get back onto it. Should you forsake the Master you enlisted to serve, it will be by the instigation of the evil one, and you will follow his dictation and be his servant. You, we, are a people of covenants. We cannot allow our choices to compromise covenants and remain on neutral ground. Nor can we keep covenants and remain on neutral ground. We have forever left neutral ground, and our willful choices must place us on one side or the other. Fortunately, because Heavenly Father loves us and understands our imperfections, He knows that we will sometimes choose amiss, and we need never remain on the wrong side. But more on that later. Lehi made the essential elements of agency clear. Men are instructed that they know sufficiently that they know good from evil. It must needs be that there is an opposition in all things. Wherefore the Lord gave unto man that he should act for himself, and they are free to choose liberty and eternal life through the great mediator of all men, or to choose captivity and death according to the captivity and power of the devil. The concept is simple. The consequences are vast. Being agents unto ourselves places burdens on us that seem sometimes heavy or uncomfortable. Jesus said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, 
When he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of them, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Three people, three choices. Each choice was made independently within the heart and mind of the individual where all of our most important choices must ultimately be made. And incidentally, the two pence given by the Samaritan to the innkeeper amounted to two days' wages for a workman of that time, not a light commitment. Thirty years ago, as I sat in a chapel awaiting the beginning of a priesthood meeting, a group of young men, priests, sat down on the bench behind me. Outside there poured from the sky a drenching rain. One of the young men said to another, Did you see the woman with the flat tire on Canyon Road? Yes, came the reply, in a voice full of honest concern. We'd have stopped to help her, but we would have been late for priesthood meeting. Two roads diverged in a driving rain, one leading to timely arrival at priesthood meeting and one to someone in distress. Were the roads equally fair? I do not suppose that any of the young men sitting behind me lost their eternal reward on that day, nor do I suspect that any permanent harm came to the woman with the flat tire. No, the most troubling aspect of this experience for me is that hearing of the woman's distress, I did not leave the meeting to help her. Did I figuratively look and pass by on the other side, leaving my two pence in my pocket? It's a question I must ask myself. Perhaps you, too, have hard questions in need of honest examination. Years later, a wise stake president, speaking in a stake conference, made a statement that has been teaching me ever since. This is what he said. The spirit of the law is most often gained by repeated obedience to the letter of the law. Let me say that again. The spirit of the law is most often gained by repeated obedience to the letter of the law. The statement brings to mind Brigham Young's comment, quote, It matters not whether you or I feel like praying. When the time comes to pray, pray. If we do not feel like it, we should pray till we do. If we are to emulate the Savior, then our choices must repeatedly lead us to Christ-like behavior, even when we do not feel like being Christ-like. We must continually strive to behave in ways that are unnatural to the natural man until that Christian conditioning becomes natural and we become more Christ-like. As you may recognize, I am not speaking here of the broad, overarching, and governing decisions of life. Baptism temple covenants, marriage, children, and the like, absolutely crucial as these decisions are. Many of you wear rings bearing the letters CTR, choose the right. The abundant opportunities to choose the right that confront us in apparently small ways each day provide the choices that I'm talking about. These are the choices that mold character and determine who at the core we really are. In reality, they are not small choices. Their very importance is the burden of choice. But beyond the burden lies the blessing, because as we learn to make the seemingly little decisions properly, the broad, overarching, and governing decisions of life become clearer, and we make them with purer motives and greater commitment. Recall Frost's line, Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. Sometimes, though, it's necessary to come back. All roads are not created equal, and you can turn around. Inevitably, some of our choices will be poor ones, made with too little data or too much haste, too little restraint or too much fear, too little prayer or too much doubt. The good news is that there is almost no poor choice that cannot be corrected with timely action. Amulek taught that this life is the time for us to prepare to meet God. Behold, if we do not improve our time while in this life, then cometh the night of darkness wherein there can be no labor performed. A careful reading of that scripture in the context of surrounding verses and footnote references reveals that the night of darkness for the unrepentant, to which Amulek refers, is beyond the veil. 
The key to avoiding that night of darkness is timely action on this side of the veil. Helaman assures us that it is possible to wait too long to make important changes in our lives. But behold, your days of probation are past. Ye have procrastinated the day of your salvation until it is everlastingly too late, and your destruction is made sure. Yea, for ye have sought all the days of your lives for that which ye could not obtain, and ye have sought happiness in doing iniquity, which thing is contrary to the nature of that righteousness which is in our great and eternal head. The warning is clearly serious. Nevertheless, I suspect that it is everlastingly too late for none of you. For the present, time is on your side, and you have the choice to change. Some time past, I received an unusual package in the mail. It contained this small crystal and a letter. The letter said something like this. I was a student in your mineralogy class a few years ago. I saw this crystal in the lab and wanted it. It seemed that there were other similar specimens and that this one wouldn't be needed or missed, so I took it. The letter went on to describe the burden of remorse that had grown over those years. In my mind's eye, a desk drawer is open at home, and a BYU graduate shrinks from this innocuous little crystal. It is moved to a less frequently accessed drawer, but weeks or months later the same thing happens, almost unexpectedly. Finally, so much of self-worth and self-respect seems to ride on a nearly worthless little piece of inorganic stuff that this intrinsically good person must return the crystal. I felt a little emotional as I read the letter and imagined this person carrying the weight of senseless guilt for so long. Then, as I recognized what I was feeling, words of scripture came to mind. And how great is his joy in the soul that repenteth. Truly, his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. My former student made a choice to change. That choice is open to every one of us. Only the specific nature of the change varies. A word about the meaning of change may be in order. In the heyday of light bulb jokes, there was one that went about the Church. How many bishops does it take to change a light bulb? The answer, just one, but the light bulb really has to want to change. I don't know whether one can speak of a true joke, but that one comes close. The Prophet Mormon, recording in his own short book the carnage of a final struggle between two godless foes, wrote of the mourning that overcame his people as they sensed impending destruction. He became optimistic about their apparent repentance and rejoiced in the possibility that the Lord would once again save them from themselves. And then he writes, but behold, this my joy was vain, for their sorrowing was not under repentance because of the goodness of God. It was rather the sorrowing of the damned, because the Lord would not always suffer them to take happiness in sin. The message of Mormon's observation is that repentance, while it generally involves a change in behavior, is more than a mere change in behavior. The Lord looketh upon the heart. It really is the heart that counts. Would I advise people to change bad behavior for the wrong reason? Change bad behavior for any reason, and perhaps real repentance will eventually follow. But in the end, God looks on what I in others cannot. He looketh upon the heart. And when our actions fall short, but our hearts are right in His sight, then the Atonement of His only begotten Son provides compensation for our deficiencies. We've considered the gift of agency, some of the burdens of agency, and choosing to change for the better. If you spent any significant time on this planet or even went to kindergarten, you understand that no one gets to choose in everything. Life thrusts upon us all circumstances that are not of our choosing. We deal with the loss of loved ones, personal illness, and many other situations we would not have chosen for ourselves. It is not capricious chance or even personal trials, but conscious choices that prove them herewith to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. And that's why we're here. Our afflictions and challenges may not always be entirely within our control, 
But the most important parts of us, our minds and our hearts, are or can be. If you doubt that, read. Start with Natan Sharansky or Elie Wiesel or Joseph Smith. Life for most of us is a recursive exercise. That is, we make choices that result in consequences, and what we learn from the consequences helps us make better choices. As we repeat this process, we learn to make choices that produce positive consequences, or at least consequences we can live with. This recursive procedure generally results in eventually being faced with fewer choices between good and evil and more choices between good and good, especially for those whose lives are significantly influenced by the light of Christ. We are presented with so many apparently worthy activities on which to spend our time and energy that it may seem as if we can hardly go wrong. Be cautious here. We can choose to be so involved in good things that we exclude from our lives the essential things. Others have referred to the pitfalls of becoming engaged in the thick of thin things. In all of our lives, there are things we must do and time we must spend doing them, and other things that we choose to do with our discretionary time. May I suggest a question that should inform every decision about how we will spend substantial discretionary time? It is this. Will this choice lead me toward what I want to be, not just what I want to do, but what I want to be? In reality, our most important choices are not about what we will do, but about what we will be. Two examples will illustrate what I mean. On a 1997 flight across the Atlantic to attend a scientific conference in Aberdeen, Scotland, I sat behind two women. At some point during the long flight, they began conversing in good English, tinged with some sort of European accent that I couldn't quite place. Their conversation was rather loud because of the jet engines, and although I should have done my best not to listen in, I confess that they caught my attention, and what they said still does. They spoke critically of Americans for lack of depth in their relationships with people. Said one, the first thing that an American wants to know about a person who has just been introduced is what the person does for a living. Yes, concurred the other, that seems to form their basis for personal judgments. They aren't interested in who a person really is beyond his occupation. As I pondered their evaluation, I found myself realizing uncomfortably that they may be more right than I wanted to admit. For much of the remainder of the flight, I pondered these two questions. One, beyond those aspects of my life that are connected with my work at BYU, who am I? Two, isn't what I am more than merely what I do? The intellectual answers to to those questions are easy. The operational answers can be challenging. A second illustration comes from Elder Boyd K. Packer, acting president of the Quorum of the Twelve. Once in a stake meeting, I noticed a larger-than-usual number of older members, most of them widows. I mentioned to the stake president how impressive they were. The president replied, yes, but they're not active in the Church, meaning they did not serve as leaders or teachers. He spoke as though they were a burden. I repeated his words not active in the Church, and asked, Are they active in the gospel? He did not quite understand the difference at first. Like many of us, he concentrated so much on what people do that he overlooked what they are. Elder Russell M. Nelson of the Quorum of the Twelve has put it this way, It is important to know who you are and who you may become. It is more important than what you do, vital as your work is. You pursue an education to prepare for life's work, but you also need to prepare for life, eternal life. I emphasize this because some people on life's journey forget who they really are and what is really important. Without sure identity and priority, blessings that matter most are at the mercy of things that matter least. I invite you once more to examine your choices and ask, will this choice lead me toward what I want to be, not just to do, but to be. A few minutes ago I said that the abundant opportunities to choose the right that confront us in apparently small ways each day 
provide the choices that mold character and determine at the core who we really are. Do you understand how important it is that you not just do something, but be someone? You really are, what, who you really are will matter in the long run more than what you've done. Those are not entirely unrelated, of course, but who we are in the end is more than a mere list of accomplishments captured on a resume. Might that be what the Savior meant when he said, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Perhaps you are now expecting a convenient checklist of criteria that will lead you to the right choices in your lives. Although I can offer a listening ear and very fallible advice, I cannot make your choices for you, nor can I dictate how you should make them. That, you will recall, was someone else's plan. Repeatedly throughout your days, two roads, appearing equally fair, will diverge in a yellow wood or in a driving rain or in whatever your circumstance happens to be at the time, and you will have to choose. Experience suggests that almost always, not far down the road, you will know whether your choice was right. Furthermore, very few of life's poor choices cannot be rectified. You can turn around, though doing so takes resolve and it may be painful. If you strive to repeatedly make choices that lead you to become what our Father in Heaven wants you to be, not just to do, but to be, then the words of the Apostle John describe your destiny. Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. As you choose your roads, may you make agency your ally. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was being the master of your life and the choices you make with thoughts from Kerry Roberts and Dana T. Griffin. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.